What a privilege we have this morning to take God's Word and to turn to Mark chapter 9 and verse 30. Mark 9, verse 30. As you're turning there, I just want to say I, I'm so indebted to Dr. Beaky this morning for sharing some of the insights that I'll be sharing with you this morning. But as you recall, we uh, sort of began this sermon last week. It's sort of the continuation of what we talked about, about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, what it means to be a Christian. And, and last week in this text, we looked at the fact that a, a disciple, a Christian, is one who is servant-hearted, that the Lord Jesus Christ has set us free, that we're no longer consumed with ourselves and exalting ourselves, but instead we have the freedom in Christ to love others and to put others first, to serve them. And so therefore, uh, a disciple of Christ is also kingdom-focused. It's not about me and my church and the denomination that I go to and exalting and only thinking about my part of the kingdom of God, but it's in a glory in the fact that Christ is put first and that uh, there are many brothers and sisters around the world that are doing his work and we can rejoice in that as well. But this morning we're also going to see that a Christian is someone who deals with sin seriously, radically, and biblically. Uh, disciples of Christ are committed to, to be against sin in any form, especially in their own lives. Not just about sin out there in the culture, but sin in here in, in our own hearts. And so let's listen carefully as we read from God's Word. We're going to be reading verses 30 through 50, even though we're going to be just dealing with a portion of this this morning. They went on from there, that's Jesus and the disciples, and passed through Galilee and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid uh, to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they were arguing with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, uh, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw somebody casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Don't stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of you, because you belong to Christ, will by no means lose his reward and then our text for today whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and we were and he were thrown into the sea and if your hand causes you to sin cut it off it's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire and if your foot causes you to sin cut it off it's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, 
where their worm does not die and, and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we pray that you would make your word swift this morning, passing not only into our ears, but Lord, into our hearts as well. And from our hearts to our conversation and, and into our lives, that as the rain returns not empty without accomplishing the purpose for which you sent it, so neither may your word this morning, God, but may it accomplish all that you have given it to do in our hearts this morning. We pray in your name. Amen. Too many people today, including some Christians, think that Jesus is soft on sin because of his mercy, because of his love, because of his gospel grace. Many people don't realize that no one talked more about being radical in regards to sin or the consequences of sin or the heinous nature of sin, or the hell that is the result of sin, so much as Jesus Christ did. Part of that is, is that many Christians today have bought in too much to the holiness movement. And what I mean by that is sort of a, a sense of letting go and letting God. And that's sort of how they live their Christian life. They think of the Christian life as not so much as a struggle, they don't think of it so much as a battle as it is living a Christian life and letting God deal with your sin as he wants. It is letting God sort of work quietly in your lives and thus allowing you to avoid the battle with sin. They think that Jesus died for my sins, so now I don't have to worry about sin. Now the first part of that statement is true. Christ has died for our sins. But it's not so that we don't have to worry about sin anymore. Jesus didn't eradicate that completely. We still wrestle with sin. And, and this whole idea of sort of letting go and, and letting God is, is so prevalent in the, the church today that, uh, that oftentimes Christians sort of think about the Christian life as just rest in Jesus and all will be well. The hard work of sanctification that the Bible speaks of, the spiritual warfare, the putting to death of sin, all of that is not necessary. But the problem with that kind of thinking is, is it's not consistent with what the Bible teaches. It's not consistent with what Jesus teaches. You see, sin caused Jesus' death. It was because of sin that it was necessary for Jesus Christ to come to die so that he might purchase a people for himself, so that we might have a relationship with God. And so God sees something, God sees sin as something to deal with radically in our lives. And so today I want us to look at the words of Jesus himself as he talks about sin. And not only to those who are unbelievers, but especially to those who are believers, to understand the necessity of addressing or killing sin in our lives 
and the remaining indwelling sin that we oftentimes wrestle with. And so in our text today, we're really going to look at two points. And the first point, I'm actually just going to mention very briefly, we're going to spend the bulk of our time in the second point, but that is this, that a disciple of Jesus Christ, a Christian, is, uh, is one who deals with their sin in relation with others, first of all, in verse 42, but then also in relationship with ourselves as well, in verses 43 through 50. And so let's look just very briefly at verse 42 in dealing with sin in relation to others. Now, we're gonna, not going to talk about everything that there is to talk about in relationship to sin of others. But Jesus said in verse 42, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. You see, Jesus warns us against causing others to stumble in their Christian life. Now, when he says little ones, you know, we probably immediately think of little kids, right? So he's saying that it's just those little kids. But really, if you look at the context of verses 39 through 41, and, and just even how the disciples in their arrogance were, you know, downplaying the work of, of another believer in Jesus Christ, it seems to indicate, and commentators would agree, that really what Jesus is speaking here is about any disciple of any age. So if we cause others, no matter what their age is, you know, that uh, we have done a great uh, sin ourselves. Now, he says that we should not, we should be careful not to cause them to sin. The Greek word there is uh, uh, scandalon, which is the word we get scandal from, but it's to be brought to a downfall. It is to cause someone to stumble uh, in their faith, to, to destroy the faith of a fellow believer. Jesus says it would be better for the person that caused that stumbling if, if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now, kids, we don't have millstones today, at least not in our neck of the woods, you know, but a, a, a millstone was a huge stone that a donkey would sort of cause to rotate or pull in order to crush the grain. And so it was so heavy that, that a human being could not move it, but it, it took an animal to do that. And Jesus says it would be better for a person who caused another to stumble in their faith if such a stone was tied around their neck, and then that stone was cast into the sea, and just down and down and down they would go until they would drown. Now, I don't know about you, there's probably a lot of horrific ways to die, but that would be one of those, would it not? I mean, if we really think about it, we just read these scriptures like, okay, yeah, whatever. But think about this. Think about what Jesus is saying. He is saying it would be the better option if rather than causing someone to stumble in their faith that you would die such a horrific death. Uh, one commentator said about verse 42, he said, hurling a sinner to a watery grave was a graphic way for Jesus to convey the finality of God's wrath against spiritual pride. Because that's sort of the context. Of, of chapter 9, at least this portion of it, 
where the disciples were being so proud and arrogant that they were arguing with one another. That they were looking at other people's ministry and saying, well, that's not our ministry, so that's not important. And they were seeing that pride. And, and the pride in, in us can actually cause others to stumble. So Jesus uses this contrast between drowning and, and really hell to shock us into taking sin seriously, especially in the way that it affects other people. Now, we may not even think about that. We may not even think about our sins as affecting other people, but, but it can. And, and this is so applicable to all of us. I mean, definitely to church leaders, that we need to be careful in the way that we shepherd and, uh, and care for the sheep, for Sunday school teachers, for Bible study leaders, uh, for parents as they're raising their kids, even for Christians in general, as we influence those around us. And so we need to understand that Christians are those who deal with their sin radically and biblically in regards to how it affects others. But, but also, and this is where I want to spend the bulk of our time, is it is in terms of dealing with our sin in relation to ourselves. Look at verses 43 through 47. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. You see, we have a duty that we see in Scripture to kill remaining sin. You know, Jesus Christ died, and He took away the power of sin, and He took away the penalty of sin, but sin is still present in our lives. It is still something that we wrestle with. And if you don't believe me, then read Romans 7. Romans 7, 17, and 18, and 23, and 24, you know, just... That whole chapter, just read that and you see the struggle that Paul talks about. And, and we show this struggle every time we show bitterness towards somebody else. Or we are tempted to retaliate against someone who did something to wrong us. Or uh, even as we are jealous of other people and what God gives them. And they didn't, God didn't give it to me. And so uh, jealousy raises its ugly head in my heart. Or when we lost, or we are proud, or we're angry, or the list can go on and on and on. You see, Paul built his life on the reality that the remnant of sin remained in his life. And, and he, that's what he shares in Romans 7. But he also built the strategy against sin on the fact of his own weakness regarding sin. Look, if you would, at Romans 7. Um, let me just read a few verses, uh, 21 through 24. Um, Paul says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. You see, um, as Jesus approaches this topic in, in our text, he teaches us that it is necessary for us to build our lives sort of on that same platform, that platform of our recognition of our spiritual weakness and our temptation towards sin. And so therefore, we are not to harbor sin in, in our hearts, but instead, as Jesus says here very graphically, we are to kill it. We're to cut it off. We're to, to, to not try to explain it, not condone it, not nourish it, not cherish it, not tolerate it, but terminate it. 
to destroy it. Now, we will never be uh, free from this battle with sin until the day when we go to be home with the Lord. But nonetheless, we are to seek to put it to death. Now, Christian, I want you to understand that you are indwelt by Jesus Christ. We've been talking about that in Sunday school, in the adult Sunday school class. It's been a great class. And uh, we need to be reminded that we are a new creation in Him. We are a son of God. But because we are that, we are to be who we are. We need to understand that we are to consider ourselves dead unto sin, to live according to what we are called to be, to be a Christian, or to be Christ-like in the way that we live. We are not to live like someone whom Christ has no influence over if we are a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. A, a Christian has no right to excuse the smallest of sin in his or her life when they have such a great Savior. Amen? And so Jesus says here, be radical in dealing with sin. Cut it off. Cut it off. Tear it out. And when he's, when he's saying that, what he's saying is, have no mercy on your sin. Make no truce with sin to protect it, maybe so that you can then return to it again. Don't leave the door open. Don't leave the options open to return to that sin. Kill it! Now, how can we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who have been transformed by and, and had our sins taken away by the Lamb of God, continue to make excuses for our sin. It's illogical. But sadly, it happens. And you and I know the process, right? This is where we live. This is where we struggle oftentimes. You try to rationalize in your own mind maybe something like this. Well, but this sin isn't that bad. Or at least I don't do this. It could be worse. Or, you know, I know so-and-so, they do this, and they're actually an elder in the church, so I, at least I don't do that. And we begin to, you know, just do some mental gymnastics to try to get around our sin and to think it's not so bad. But Jesus says, no, eradicate that sin. And your sin says, well, but I just want a little bit of you. I don't want all of you, just a little bit. Just give me a little bit here. Maybe give me a little bit there. You know, not... How can just such a little bit of sin hurt? I mean, sin, sin doesn't want a lot of you at first. It just wants enough to keep itself alive in you. Jesus says, kill it. Show no mercy. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Now, what did Jesus mean by this? And kids, I want you to hear me, okay? Of course he doesn't mean that you're supposed to literally cut your hand off. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying you're supposed to cut your foot off, you're supposed to gouge your eye out. He's not using that literally in a physical way. Because we know as we look at the Old Testament law, especially like in Deuteronomy 14, you know, it, it speaks against mutilating the body. And so that's not really what he's talking about, but rather he's talking about what we are to do spiritually with our, with our spiritual eyes and, and feet and hands. And so Jesus is speaking of a hand 
that, that has a temptation to slip itself into someone else's purse or wallet or till to take money. He's talking about a hand that, that uh, forms a fist in defiance against your parents when they tell you what to do because you don't want to do what they want you to do. It, he's talking about a hand that, that caresses the flesh of another that's not your spouse. He, he's talking about a hand that picks up yet another glass of whiskey and drinks it. Or he talks about the hand that clicks on the browser and moves the mouse to go to that immoral website. That's what he's talking about. And he's talking about that with your hand and your foot and your eyes. And Jesus says, cut it off. Gouge it out. Cut sin off. So we are to radically deal with sin and to put it to death and give it no place in our lives. And, and he says at the end of verse 43, he said, It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. Oh, brothers and sisters, how do you use your body parts? What do your eyes see and read and watch? What have they done this week? What shows do you watch? What websites do you visit? How many chapters of the Word of God do you read in a day or a week? Are you starving sin and promoting righteousness? Are you engaged with all the power given you by God, by His Holy Spirit to fight against sin? Or, or are you coddling your sin? Are you keeping sort of a back door open? Uh, so that you can return to it when you want to. Are, are, are you, or maybe your life is just sort of one of those that you sort of go with the flow. So, you know, you obey Christ sometimes, you give in to sin sometimes. It's just whatever hits you at the moment is what you do. Jesus says in verse 47, And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to, be, to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. And, and in Paul's words in Romans chapter 6, verse 13, he says, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. We're not to use our body parts as instruments of unrighteousness, but that of righteousness. Now, you got to understand that just because Jesus is speaking figuratively when he talks about cutting off body parts, it doesn't mean that he's being soft on sin. And I hear preachers do this all the time. They want to be so careful that the congregation understands that, you know, this isn't literally cutting off body parts, that they'll go to that extreme that it sort of makes it sound like, yeah, so your sin's no big deal. But that's not true. Jesus is talking radically in dealing with sin here. Some of you might remember uh, back in, I think it was 2003, so it's been a while ago, there was a guy by the name of Aaron Ralston, and he was hiking in a remote canyon in Utah. And he was climbing up on these boulders, and his hand uh, was in a certain place, and a boulder came down and trapped his hand. Well, the problem is he was in a very secluded place. Nobody else was going to be coming out there. He only had about a fourth of a gallon, about a quart 
of water, and, uh, and days went by, and he was trapped. And uh, as a matter of fact, five days went by, you know, and you could live like, what, three days without water. So his circumstances were very uh, dire before finally he was rescued. But it wasn't that he was rescued because someone found him. He was rescued because he remembered that he had a dull pocket knife in his hands. And I don't want to be graphic here, but you can just imagine what he had to do. And, and the person that I read that was telling this was saying he had to press down so hard on the skin just to break the skin that to complete the process, it took him breaking his own bones. And then he wrapped himself in a tourniquet and he hiked until he found civilization. Now, can you imagine how desperate you would have to be to perform such an act on your own body? But as horrific as, as it would be to amputate your own arm, it was either that or die. So how do you deal with sin so radically? Because that's what we're called to. I mean, he would, Aaron would never have done that if he didn't know that if he didn't do something, he would die. And that's what Jesus lays before us today. Is he lays before us the fires of hell or you put to death sin. So how do you do that? Well, you know, John Owen is sort of the, the go-to person when it comes to talking about mortifying or killing sin. Let me just share uh, just three things with you uh, from his book that would help us in terms of dealing with sin. First of all, we are to weaken our lust habitually. Okay, we're to weaken our lust habitually. Let me read a quote here. He's, Owen says, when a man is nailed to a cross, he at first struggles and strives and cries out with great strength and might. But as his blood and his spirit waste, his strivings are faint and seldom. He cries. It may sometimes have a dying pang that makes an appearance of great vigor and strength, but it quickly over, especially if it's kept from considerable success. In other words, the power of sin is weakened little by little when we starve that sin. When we starve that sin, so that that sin does not become our master and control us. You know, we, we starve it. We don't, if we struggle with lust, we're not watching movies that are R-rated movies that have inappropriate stuff in it. We're not just sort of casually perusing the internet, you know, to see whatever we see. There's an intentionality of staying away from that sin so as not to feed that lust. The second thing he says is we are never to give up resisting against sin. Uh, we are always to remember that sin is our enemy and we have to destroy it in every possible way with every possible means. You see, we need to understand the strategies of Satan. Satan is crafty. He can make you think that the lust of your heart, whether that's 
you know, for the lust of the flesh or whether it's for the, the power of pride or, or whatever it may be, however it manifests itself in your life, you may think, oh, well, I've conquered that. And so then you become lax in being guarded against that sin. And then Satan's like, yes, now I got it. As he begins to reel you in, as you become sloppy with battling against sin. We are at war with Satan and sin, and we must never forget this. I was thinking about that this week, and I thought, well, what would happen if President Zelensky in Ukraine didn't acknowledge the war that was happening in this country? What if it was just, you know, life is just normal in Ukraine with the bombs dropping and, and people being killed? I will tell you this, a lot more people would be dead right now. But he is not so naive and so stupid as to do that. He recognizes that he is at war. And so all uh, his whole country has restructured itself to deal with that war. And we as Christians must understand that we are at war and cannot lay down our guard. The third thing Owen talks about is we are to gain strength to defeat future temptations by defeating present temptations now. We, we need to gain strength to defeat future temptation by defeating present temptation now. If we fail now in facing temptation, it's going to be even easier to fail and to give in to that temptation tomorrow. Uh, we weaken our lust, not only by starving it, but also, as Owen says, by encouraging those graces that stand in direct opposition to our lust. To encourage those graces that stand in direct opposition to our lust. And you're going, now, what do, what do you mean by that? Let me give you an example. What better way to put to death pride than to grow in humility? What better way to address our anger than to grow in gentleness? You see, it's a sense of giving ourselves, not just focusing upon our sins but also focusing upon God's graces to walk in obedience to Him. And so what better way to deal with the lust of the flesh than to love your wife more so each and every day intentionally? Or if you're single, to love others and to put them before yourself each and every day. You see, these graces are strengthened as we constantly look to Jesus for strength, both in his word and in prayer. As we face these temptations, we need to cry out to God, Lord, help me in the midst of my temptation. I am struggling. Satan is coming at me. Uh, there's a sense of which we not only pray, but we take his word that we've hidden in our hearts. And this is what excites my heart so much as I hear about you guys memorizing scripture and you're teaching your kids to do the same. So when they encounter those times of temptation, they can speak the word of God to themselves and be reminded of what's true. And that temptation is not what's true. Or they can open the word of God if they don't have it perfectly memorized. They know where it's at. And they can go and they can read that word. Which then gives them strength. So we are to be motivated to, to kill sin. Um, but Jesus gives us here a very strong motivation for putting to death sin. Um, and, and actually, he could have given us a lot of different motivations, but the one he uses here in this passage is the fear of hell 
the fear of hell. Now, now think about that. Doesn't that sound odd to you? He, he is talking to his disciples. He's talking to people who are saved. And you would say, they're not going to hell. So why would Jesus say this? But three times, Jesus says to his disciples, it is better for you to enter life crippled or lamed or with one eye than to be thrown into hell where the fire is not quenched. Now, brothers and sisters, feel the weight of these words. These are not John Calvin's words. These are not Jonathan Edwards' words. These are not my words. These are the words of Jesus Christ. And he says that he will throw those into hell who do not radically deal with their sin. And so Jesus brings this doctrine, this truth, this reality of hell to bear upon his own people. And, and, and recognize here, he's not talking about Hades. You know, Hades, you know, sometimes refers to the grave, so we can't get it around that there. He's talking about Gehenna, which is the Greek word that refers to hell. Fire and brimstone hell. You see, the word Gehenna originally came from the Hebrew, which was a reference to the Valley of Hanam, or in Hebrew, Gehenam. And thus, in the Greek, Gehenna, okay? In the Old Testament, the valley of Hinnom was just south of Jerusalem. I think, if I remember right, it was southwest of Jerusalem. And it became known as a place of fire because that's where all the Jews would throw their garbage. And they would light that garbage to get rid of it. And there was constantly a fire that was going on. And if you read the Old Testament closely enough, you'll read of times, dark times in the life of of God's people where King Ahaz and Manasseh even sacrificed their children in that fire to Moloch. And then you have God raising up King Josiah who sought to destroy that place so that he could get rid of this evil practice. But because of all of this, this, this place known as Gehana gradually became synonymous with hell, the final resting place of the wicked, the place where they would undergo fiery punishment and torment for all eternity, apart from God's mercy. And it is in that place, it is a place for all those who refuse the gospel of Jesus Christ and refuse to repent before God. Now, God can use this to motivate us, right? I mean, these words that Jesus uses here in this text, especially the part about for their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to flesh. That's actually a quote from Isaiah 66, 24. And Jesus wants to remind us that people are to be cast into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. In other words, there will be no end to the judgment of those who refuse to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and those who refuse to kill their sin. Whether that sin is expressed through the members of their body or whether it's expressed in their inner thoughts. That's what Jesus says. Now, you see, a Christian is someone who deals radically with their sin by putting that sin to death. Their life is one of battle. Their life is one of warfare. You know... So I want to ask us today, 
Where are you? Are you crucifying yourself? Are you killing the lust of your flesh? Are you serious in this battle? Those who are not serious in this battle will end up in hell no matter whether they think that they're Christians or not. It doesn't matter what you say about yourself. The reality is that a Christian is someone in whom God's Spirit so works that they see sin the same way their Savior sees sin. And he saw sin so awful that he came and he died on the cross and he rose again in power and glory and sits at the right hand of the Father and intercedes on behalf of you and I as His children so that we might deal with sin the same way. You see, those who are cast into hell, their conscience will remind them of the pleasures of their sin while they were here upon this earth and how they rejected God. And I think about those who grown up in the church and even those who would profess faith in Jesus Christ but find themselves in hell, I cannot help but think that for all eternity that every Bible study that they've been through, every sermon that they've heard, every time that they were in church, every family worship time that they had with their family will come to mind and haunt them forever and ever and ever. Whether you're here today and you're converted or unconverted, if, if you refuse to cut off your sin and you want to live the life you want to live, doing things the way you want to do it with your hands and your feet and your eyes, Jesus says you will be thrown into hell. And there your memory will be perfect. Oh, brothers and sisters, what an awful thing. Now, there are some of you that are theologians that are really wrestling with this. But these are the words of Jesus. And you, you're asking, well, does that mean that God's people will end up in hell? And the answer is no. But Jesus uses warnings like this to encourage us not to give up the battle. He also uses this teaching to, to remind us that there are those who think that they're believers, but... There is not evidence of the work of the Spirit of God in their hearts. But even for those who are believers, there is a soberness here as we read this text that causes us to heed Christ's warning and say, I've been slack in the battle. I need to, I need to return. And God warns us while He protects us. And He uses the warnings to help us to protect us. His, His warnings are, if you could say, like a gift. God loves His people so much that He warns them of the dangers of the eternal fires of hell because He's warning us to kill sin or sin will kill you, as Owen says. Sever sin from your life. It must be a decisive work and a complete work and a perfect work. Now you're saying, Pastor Rick, I will never be perfect in that. And that's true. You will not. I will not be perfect in that. But too often, because we know that we will not be perfect in dealing with our sin, we begin to excuse our sin. But do we not remember what sin cost our perfect Savior who died for us? It cost Him the cross. And so how can we sin against Him? Ought we not to be seeking to deal with our sin as perfectly as we can and praying for the Spirit of God to work in our hearts to help us where we are weak, to cut it out and to cast us away? 
We must do this with the Holy Spirit's power. Now, I don't know about you, but I just thank God that He has given us His Holy Spirit. I thank God that the reality of the Holy Spirit is so real. It's not just a, a series in a Sunday school class, but what Chris is teaching us is the truth of God's Word. And His Spirit gives us that strength to deal with our sin. And He will help us, and He will empower us, and He gives us strength. But we must do it, brothers and sisters. And it's not that we're doing it in our strength. It is His strength. But we must do it. Sanctification is that working together of the Spirit of God in the heart of man to walk in Christ's likeness. And we really don't add anything to God's efforts, but we are the channel, we are the instrument through which He works. And so we have to be involved in that. We cannot say, let go and let God. So he gives us strength in the battle and we must carry it out. There's a war going on. And like I said, it's a war that's going to last a lifetime until we take our final breath here upon this earth. And until then, as verse 49 says, we will be salted with fire. Now, what does that mean? Well, these last couple of verses, there's differences of thoughts about this. But I really believe that this is a reference to the Old Testament sacrifice that many of the Old Testament sacrifices, actually all of them, were salted with salt. And in, in the New Testament, what he's saying is those whose lives are living sacrifices presented to God are going to be salted with fire. They're going to be salted with fiery trials on the way to glory. And as we pass through them, we will pass through them and we will be fighting this war with sin. And God appoints those trials to come at appointed times in our lives and, and through those trials, He enables us to kill sin. So those trials are actually good for us. That's why James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So there's a war that's going on. And God is at work in this world with His people. And so is Satan as well. And so there's no place really for us to have a, a mindset of self-indulgence. At least not a self-indulgence that makes the Christian life seem like nothing more than going to church each week and, and perhaps reading our Bible every now and again.
Sacrifices it takes, brothers and sisters, though, are well worth it. The resulting transformation that God does in our lives to love, to be gentle, to, to walk in humility, are all sacrifices well worth making as we see the work of God in our hearts through His Holy Spirit. And, and one day, um, even though we walk through these fiery trials, we're, we're battling with our sin, one day we will be more like our Savior. And not only that, will we one day be more like our Savior, but one day we will be with our Savior as well. And then the fight of faith, the war will be over. Amen? May the Lord make us victors in this conflict that we have with sin. Please bow your heads with me if you would this morning. And let's take a few moments and just meditate upon these things. Maybe the Lord's prompting you to pray to Him. And, and to deal with your own heart. Let's take just a few moments of silence and give you that time. Jesus, we thank you so much that you have died for us, Lord, so that we can deal with our sin as we rely upon you, your word, your Holy Spirit, prayer. Oh God, we pray for a mighty work in our hearts today. We thank you, Lord, for loving us so much to, to snap us out of our slumber, Lord, when we're tempted just to fall into the dream and the sleep of this world and just try to live just far enough above the standard of this world that we feel good about ourselves and yet denying what it means to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, oh God, we pray to, to walk in, in the power of your Holy Spirit. Transform us, change us, oh God. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would enable us, that you would work through us to put to death the sin that we wrestle with. Let us, let, let our sins, God, make us peak. They are just a stench in our nostrils as they are a stench in yours. That we might glorify you. Lord, we thank you and we pray these things in your name. Amen.